It's from the book of Genesis, chapter 13, verses 5 through 18. And it's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we sang just moments ago that you have smiled upon us. In Jesus, you have been good to us. And so we thank you for the favor that you show us, even in this word that you make available to us, instructing our hearts, giving new ways of looking at life in the world giving us new insights into who you are, God, and how you relate to us. We pray that you would do all those things. Show your favor upon us. Smile upon us in this time in your word. Bless it. Change our lives in it. In Jesus' name, amen. This coming week is a special week for me and my family as our daughter, Elena, uh, heads towards the one-year mark, a special time. And uh, so, therefore, it's been this time of reflection for me since I've been a daddy for almost a year now. It, it, being a dad has been a lot of fun. Uh, one of the most fun things is to experience those where-did-she-learn-that moments. You know, whether if it's new things that she's able to do physically or maybe new ways in which she's able to see the world and process the world. And one of my favorite things that I've noticed recently, that we've noticed recently, is the way that Elena, as she's playing with her toys or with something she has in her hands, and she'll look up and offer it to us. She's starting to give and share and want to exchange together, where she'll just kind of turn around and give us things. 
We can't take credit for it. We didn't teach her that. It just happened. You know, and it's even far too early to make any grand statements about her moral character. You know, for all we know, Elena's just trying to get rid of her trash, right? I mean, that's, you don't really know what's going on. But you just can't help but to be so thrilled for her, not least because when it comes to sharing and giving, her daddy stinks at it, <laughs> right? Look, we, we celebrate and we value generosity, not only among kids as they share their toys among friends, but also among adults. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're just not that good at it. We're not sure what it ought to look like. Or we run out of gas and we just don't want to do it anymore. We know we ought to give. And even coming from various different spiritual religious backgrounds, we know that ethic ought to be built into our lives, but we don't always know how. Well, this passage addresses this challenge. And it tells us that faith, genuine vibrant gospel faith in God's promises makes you generous. That out of the overflow of joy and love, that you start to give your possessions to others for their benefit. You start to give your heart. You start to give yourself, give your time, give your life, give your space, give your words different forms of generosity. This is what happens when we really start to trust God and his promises. Well, let's look at this idea of generosity. We'll look at it in three different parts. First, barriers to generosity. Secondly, the character of generosity. And lastly, the source of generosity. And we'll find all these things in this great story of Abraham in the way that he relates to his nephew, Lot. So first, barriers to generosity. If I were to ask you, why do we struggle to give sacrificially to other people? Well, you might say it's because we're greedy, it's because we're cold hearted, it's because we're fearful. And the Bible does actually touch on each of those as being barriers, real barriers to our giving. But this story points us to another possibility. And it's this that we struggle to give to other people sacrificially. Because we look to prosperity to provide for us paradise. Let me explain what I mean by that. Abraham, at the start of this passage, is rolling in the good times. Things are going great. He's got herds and cattle and land galore. You notice this mention of his nephew Lot in verse 5, moving about with them. And their flocks and herds have expanded apparently so much that the two of them could not actually live and work in the same place. In verse 6, we're told the land could not support them while they stayed together for their possessions were so great. It's a problem, but it's kind of a nice problem to have. A lot of stuff, abundance. But when space gets tight, Conflict breaks out, and that's what happened. Verse 7 tells us that quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot, and they were pressed to the point of having to find a solution. Abram's men, Lot's men, start fighting. What are we going 
to do. And this is what we see. Look, Abram's prosperity, the flourishing of his cattle and his stuff, and even his joy was a blessing from God. That's what we've learned throughout this passage this far. It was a blessing, but it was limited. It could not be for him everything that he needed. His prosperity could not rescue anyone from their own quarreling hearts. His prosperity couldn't offer them a conflict-free or worry-free life. And Abram understood this. It's what led to his generosity. He could be open-handed with his stuff. It wasn't going to be everything to him. Abram got this. Lot, by contrast, did not. Later on, when he is starting to make this choice between where to live and what to do with Abram's generous offer, to choose first, we'll talk about that in a second. Lot, we're told, looks out into the land, and in verse 10, he looked and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan River was well watered like the garden of the Lord. The garden of Eden. This is sort of the narrator's commentary of what was really going on inside of Lot's heart. He sees this potential for economic growth. He sees all these possessions, this great land, more room for more flocks and more herds and more people, more prosperity. And what he sees is paradise. And so he grabs it so much so that even without saying thank you to Abram, He gets a hold of it and shows no reciprocation of a similar kind of generosity towards his uncle Abram. Listen, prosperity of all kinds, not just material, physical kinds, prosperity can be good, but it is always limited. It cannot save you. Prosperity can be a blessing, but it will never be paradise. But we don't believe that, do we? We don't, excuse me, believe that. We all carry around in our hearts these secret longings. Do you ever hear yourself telling yourself, if only I had more Then my life would be more full. Then I would be happier. Then I would be more free. Then I would be myself. If if I could just simply have a better, then I'll be whole. Then I'll have paradise. (laughs) And herein lies the barrier. Is it more disposable income? Is it a more spacious apartment or a house? Is it a more obedient, compliant child? Is it more friends? Can be lonely living in a city. More or better neighbors? Or maybe a more, less broken family with more, less noise in the house? For me, as I was thinking about this in the past week, this is what I came up with, the the quiet meditations, column lusts of my heart. If only I could have more free time, then, then I will have arrived. (laughs) Then I really, then I would love my wife really well and have all this energy to care for my daughter. 
and preach better sermons and love my neighbors and be all that I can be, right? This dream of paradise. What is it for you? This longing for more and better. And here's the thing. This is how it works in our hearts. You won't ever give away paradise. What's the barrier of generosity here? You won't ever give away your paradise. Whatever it is that is the garden of the Lord to you in your eyes. What is it? You know, if you're always telling yourself, if I only had more free time, that's the key to my happiness. Well, that'll be the hardest thing for you to give away when generosity calls. Or if you're always telling yourself, if I just had a better job, then I'll really be able to be myself and all that God made me to be. Well, then the last thing you'll ever do is generally, generously help other people to flourish in their cubicle next to yours or in their taxi cab next to yours or in their workstation next to yours. Even if it means they excel and get the job you want, you will not help them. Not generously, at least. Because we don't give away our paradise. But if you think God and the gospel are the key to your happiness, the key to your wholeness, the key to your paradise, well then, that brings us to our next two points. The character of generosity. What does this look like? What does this look like? Look at verses 8 and 9. So Abram says to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And in verse 11, we're told that Lot took the well-watered land, the lush and lavish land of the Jordan Valley, and Abram got the rest, which apparently wasn't so hot, at least as far as eyes could see. There are three things we learn here about gospel generosity from Abram's remarkable example and how he treats Lot. Number one, gospel generosity is sacrificial. True generosity is sacrificial. Maybe that sounds redundant to you, but you know there is a way to give to other people and to serve other people in a way that's minimally costly to yourself. There is a way to care for each other and have self-preservation as your primary goal. We do it all the time. Abram shows us a different way. It's a supremely sacrificial act. He wasn't simply giving the choice of land. He was giving Lot a future. Abram gave up not just a choice. He was giving up economic opportunity. He was giving up an easier lifestyle. He was giving up a few blisters on his feet from always having to look around for better pastures. Abram was even jeopardizing his own God-blessed wealth. 
What is this kind of costly, sacrificial care and service to other people look like? And maybe, maybe in the case of conflicts and relationships, maybe it means this extra sort of sacrificial generosity that it takes to forgive, forgive a person again and again and again without complaints surfacing again and again in our own hearts, without reservation, without hesitation. And I'm not saying we don't stumble and trip through this process but sacrificial emotional generosity given in the face of conflict. Or maybe if it's in giving and sharing your possessions with a person in need, but not simply giving out of your surplus, you know, kind of giving a little bit of the frosting on top of the cake, but saving the cake for yourself, not just giving the leftovers, but maybe... Serving people out of the heart of something that you actually need. Because again, it's easy to say we're being generous when we're only giving people the trimmings that we don't already want. It takes faith, doesn't it, to give like that. And this is why one of the measures of health in our trust in God is our ability to give sacrificially. It takes the grace of God to give like this. What Abram did for Lot was remarkably sacrificial, but his generosity isn't found only in what he gave to Lot, but also in how he gave. So it wasn't just remarkably sacrificial. Gospel generosity also gives up control. Gives up control. I notice in my marriage and in my relationship with even my baby daughter, Elena, that I'll say that I'll serve them. And I'll say that I'll strive to be a faithful husband and a faithful daddy. And I'll do that, but I will be very careful to define exactly what the limits of that service might be. You like this too? I'll be very careful to say what are and aren't the acceptable terms of my service. I will serve you, Paula, but not when I'm tired. I will serve you, Paula, but not when I think uh, I've served you too much. Uh, I'll serve you, Paula, and I'll take care of you, uh, but not when I don't think you've served me. Uh, I'll serve you, but, and all these qualifications and the way that we control how that exchange of care and generosity takes place. Notice how different Abram is. He says to Lot in verse 9, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. He gives up control. He gives away his own power to choose how his service will be executed. An open-ended offer, true generosity, giving the other person the power to define the need, the terms of the generosity. See, I want to decide what is a need and what isn't a need and draw a line. I want to decide what's acceptable service and generosity and what's just going way too far. You can't ask that of me. 
Abram in the gospel shows us a different sort of way. A way that teaches us to say, you choose. You, my friend, you choose how I will meet your needs. You choose how I'm going to give of my time and how much of it. I don't decide when enough is the line when I stop forgiving. And I don't decide when I draw that line and where I draw that line of where this friendship is going to take us and I'm not going to cross that line any further. Gospel generosity takes us to a different place of power and control over our terms of service. And isn't this exactly how Jesus serves us? Or even in places like in Mark 9 where he tells his disciples, look, the Son of Man, this Old Testament character that he takes the title upon himself for, this great individual, humanity of all humanities, who will reign as a representative of God, the Son of Man, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He gave up control. He gave up power. His sacrifice was an open-ended, open-handed one, an open-armed one on the cross for sinners who were helpless. This is how he served. But thirdly, not only does it give up control, and not only is it remarkably sacrificial, gospel generosity relinquishes rights. Relinquishes rights. Abram gave his nephew Lot the first choice. And any ancient reader from this time and culture just would have gasped. Because as far as the culture was concerned in the ancient Near East, based upon the age of Abram over his nephew, and we don't know exactly how old Lot was, but we know he was an adult at this time, but also based upon Abram's headship over the entire family. He was the patriarch here. He could have pulled rank, and yet he didn't. He had every right, culturally speaking, to make the first choice and then to give a generous offer after that to his nephew. And not only that, but Abram was, remember, the God-appointed father over the land. He was the senior partner in this venture. He had every right by the promise of God to say, hey, this kind of belongs to me. And so let's work out a deal where you can get something that's still great, maybe excellent, but this here is mine. And let's work the rest out for you. No, not so. Verse 8, Abram says, look, Lot, we are brothers, and they are not. He treats his nephew like a peer. More than appear like a servant, subjecting himself to the choice of one that culturally, and maybe you might even say spiritually, was beneath him. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, says this about Abram's move. The social superior humbles himself before the inferior, thereby proving himself to be the spiritual superior. Of course, you see immediately these glimpses of the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago. 
This Jesus with all the rights of the authority of God Himself. The right to judge. The right to determine what is just and what is right and what is wrong even in our own lives. And yet He lays down that right in order to pour out mercy and compassion to sinners like ourselves, offering Himself as our substitute, taking our judgment in our place. The right to glory that He had. Every right as God Himself to be honored as God, and yet He was spat upon. He was forgotten. He was ignored. We're told in Philippians 2, in this great hymn that Paul is quoting, talking about the person of Jesus and the glory and the wonder of His humility, that even though He was God Himself, He did not consider being treated equal with God something to be exploited, something to be gripped, something to be needed, but rather He let it go and made Himself nothing, took on the form of a human being, was obedient to the point of death out of love for you and me, Jesus, who relinquished His rights for the rescue of others. Jesus who surrendered his rights in order to serve sinners like you and me. And so I ask you, I ask us, are we always demanding our rights in our relationships? Are we always drawing lines around, this is what is mine and will always be mine and you cannot touch this? There's a ferociousness to the way that we engage with things that we determine to be our rights, especially in this country. Because we have such a strong tradition, in many cases rightly so, but sometimes obsession with the category of Rights. Do you hear the gospel's call to surrender our rights in order to serve? What other if it's surrendering my right to a restful evening in order to care for a person that knocks on the door with a need? Or surrendering my right to pay a person back with vengeance because that would be the just thing to do and yet to say out of mercy and kindness, I will dare to forgive. Or surrendering my right to spend my hard-earned money on myself because after all it's mine, but rather surrendering it in order to serve another person with my possessions. What might that look like to surrender our rights to serve others in love, to relinquish our rights in order to enrich the lives of others. This is what Abram did. This is what the greater than Abram did in Jesus. And if we start to see the story of gospel generosity in its ultimate form reflected in the life of Jesus, we've started touching on it already. This is what gives us fresh power and motivation to live with generosity like this. So in closing, the source of generosity, how do you do this? What gave Abram the ability to give to Lot so generously? It was that he experienced the matchless generosity of God towards him. 
You see this in the way in which immediately after Abram sends Lot on his way and moves out to the crusty, barren lands of what remained, God sweeps in to reassure Abram of the promise he's given him just to make sure Abram understands that he hasn't lost a thing. God says in verse 14 to 17, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. What gave Abram the power to be so generous? It was this reminder of the promise that as far as his eyes could see, Abram was being given all things to him, a sinner, an undeserving man and individual. God is pointing out the lavishness of his promise. I promise to make you a great nation. So you're going to need descendants. I'm not just going to give you few. I'm going to give you a countless number. Do you see that emphasis here? I'm not just going to give you land as a home and a place to ground yourself to experience life before God. I'm going to give you land as far as your eyes can see to the north and the south and the west and the east. And God says the same thing to you and me. I'm not the miser that you think I am typically. I'm a God of radical generosity. I offer everything to you. I haven't even withheld my own son, Jesus. And I want to invite you to come and walk the perimeter of the land, as it were, and measure out how great is my love for you. That you might see, as it says in the book of Ephesians, how wide and deep and high and long is the sin-covering, life-abundant-making love of God in Jesus for you. Measure it out. Don't just know it in your head. Count it out. The countless number of descendants I will give you. The countless promises in Jesus that I have offered to you and fulfilled for you by His blood. For every sin that you see in your life, measure out the length and the width and the breadth of the sin-covering love of God in Jesus. And see that this is not just given generally, but given to you, my son, to you, my daughter, to you, to you personally. In verse 17, when God says, I'm giving it to you in Hebrew, the to you is actually emphasized. To you, I'm giving these promises. To you, I'm giving my forgiving love. To you, I'm giving my loyalty. To you, I'm giving my promise of protection. To you, I give myself. And I will be your God. I give it to you with generosity. We will never be generous in our relationships with other people, unless we are richly experiencing, friends, the generosity of God to us. 
Learning not just from his example, but experiencing the wealth, spiritual, emotional wealth that God pours into our lives and promises to us as our inheritance. The wealth of the freedom of forgiveness, the wealth of a new identity, the wealth of having God as a father, the wealth of the gospel. Which when you see it in the bank account of your own heart, like Abraham, you can look down and you can give away a lot of stuff, the best choice land, and still say, I haven't given up a thing. I have truly lost nothing. Because in Christ, I've got everything. This is... Gospel generosity. It is impossible apart from the impossible love, the life-changing love of Jesus. Thank God He has given it to us in an immeasurable way, in countless promises, through infinite mercy and compassion and generosity. Will you receive it? today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for reassuring our hearts that we have you in no small measure because of your son. We pray that you would uh, melt our hearts, overflow in our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see you and your gospel, the limitlessness of your love so that all of that might overflow from our lives into the lives of those around us. Do that for us and in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing this hymn.